When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows, one of my favorite writers and basketball analysts out there right now. And she did so much great work around the draft. We had been talking about doing a pre-draft podcast. That didn't end up working out. So we're doing that podcast now. Really fun. Talked about not only what the Pacers did, but also some of the fit of the players around their range and, and talked about a lot about Jaden Ivey and Keegan Murray and the offseason that the Pacers face. So really fun conversation. Runs about an hour and is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code for a 50% welcome bonus and tells them you came from us. So again, really fun pod. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks again for having me. I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to talk to you about the draft. And we'll talk about Pacers and everything else too, because it's something you and I have never really discussed. And I, that leads me to want to start with kind of a piece of draft philosophy. And it's, you know, if you had the general manager's chair, whichever team we're really talking about, how do you balance best prospect overall versus fit? Like if you were, if you had that spot, are, are you aggressive? Like best, best player, doesn't really matter. We'll figure out the fit stuff later. Or are you more of a balance between the two or are you more aggressively fit? I think it really matters about the context of the team, if I'm being honest with you, because I mean, not to always, I'm probably going to relate things back to the Pacers a lot, but you know, in this draft, because of what the trajectory of their team is, they said that they felt that they really prioritized, you know, we have a lot of holes and we just need to get talent in the building. Um, if you're a team that's more looking to be competitive, I think that the fit aspect probably matters. And I've, I've shifted on that a little bit just because I've seen kind of what's happened with Goga in Indiana. Sure. Like, I think when they took him, they said they thought he was the best player on the board and I'm guessing that they anticipated that they were going to move either Miles or Sabonis sooner than what ended up happening. Goga didn't quite seem like he was as ready to play as maybe necessarily he was billed and then there was just never minutes for him. So if you take a guy like that, you know, yeah, the talent's there, the potential might be there, but if you're not actually getting to see it on the floor and there's no opportunity for him to work on his skills, then, you know, you've just blocked one of your own picks and it kind of becomes a wasted pick at that point. That's a totally fair point. And it, I think it's also more important to consider roster construction when we're at the edges of the positional area, because there, it's harder to play those guys together. Some of it is also like, I've had this idea, Sam Bassini and I have talked about this a bunch, where if you have you know a bunch of threes, okay, you can play them at different spots, you can play them together. The, the Celtics have been a really good example of that over the years. But if it's two point guards or two centers, and, and you don't necessarily want to do that in starting or closing fives, maybe you can do it at other points in the game. 
it gets it gets harder because as you brought up, you know, with Goga, the there are opportunities to develop outside of NBA minutes, but you also don't really get, have the avenues there, and it could just be it could be hard logistically to make it all work. Oh yeah, and absolutely, especially in his context as well, because you know summer league's a good opportunity to at least get some reps, and he had visa issues and then a knee problem. And then as well as just, you know, having injury issues during his first rookie season that weren't necessarily holding him out of games. But I know that he had said in the aftermath had limited him to a degree. So Rick Carlisle tried to play he and Sabonis together and some bench units to start the season, but it didn't necessarily work. So then there's just not really an opportunity. And, you know, he also had like three different coaches. So he's constantly adjusting to different defensive systems as well and and trying to get his footing there. So I think that's probably shaded my opinion somewhat of exactly what you're saying too. Positionally, when you're not going to play a lot of bigs together or you're going to be resistant to that, then it becomes a lot more challenging. What I cracked up in your write-up on Jalen Duran, you talked about the kind of the parallels at points bet- between Duran and Isaiah Jackson. And so it's kind of getting into the idea of, well, do you really like, do you really want to go down that road if you already, you know, recently spent some real capital on a player who fills the same thing? And generally speaking, my answer is if you think the, the new person is way better than you do it, but otherwise yeah, be a little bit cautious. Yeah, whenever we did that piece, that was exactly how I approached it. That, you know, it, the only way you do, you couldn't take Jalen Duran if you were doing it for the purpose of, you know, we don't want to pay Miles Turner an extension and this guy's a cheaper option. Like it needed to be, we think this guy's going to be more special than anybody that we have on the roster and we'll make other moves to make it work. Or we're going to find ways to make it work because we value him this much at number six. Like it couldn't just be, you know, just being a cheaper placement because you don't want to pay somebody else. Getting into the results on draft night, um, and of course, you could feel free to disagree with me if you do, but something that struck me, Nate and I talked about this, was especially with towards the top, and I would include the Pacers to an extent in this, a number of players ended up in a different team than on a different team than we expected, even if the overall range, you know, you could talk about Boncaro going one or Jabari Smith going three, Ivy, all those sorts of players. But something that I noticed was, by and large, a lot of those players ended up in circumstances where the fit, you know, in terms of what the team runs, what that team needs, actually arguably makes more sense for that prospect than the place they were expected to go in, you know, mock drafts and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely point that out with Sacramento, right? I mean, it was curious whenever we were looking at that because there were so many teams that were rumored to be in talks with Sacramento to try to move up to number four, including the Pacers. And when you look at Jaden Ivey, you know, independent of De'Aaron Fox, when you watch Jaden Ivey at Purdue, I know a lot of the talk was, you know, imagine him in an offense where, you know, you no longer have Travion Williams and Edie and the paint spread and, and he can get into the lane and make plays for other people. But the upside of getting to see him was that they also they ran a lot of high pick and roll um, toward the back end of the season with him. But you also got to see him in off ball situations, running DHOs, kind of how the way the Pacers would have used Victor Oladipo with Sabonis. So I really felt that if Sacramento had taken Jaden Ivey, that he could have fit with Sabonis based on things that we had seen there. But then you have the deer and Fox element of it all and whether the two of them would have fit in a backcourt together. So, you know, they go with Keegan Murray, and it's somewhat similar with what you're saying with the Pacers. I mean, I'm guessing that if Murray or or Ivy would have been there at number six, they might have taken one of the two of them, but 
I felt very early on when we were going through our draft profiles, I watched one Arizona game and I was like, this is definitely a Rick Carlisle player. This is definitely a system that translates to the way Rick Carlisle wants to play. And I could just see all these different ways that he would plug in and be able to fit with what they're doing. So I do agree with you. It does seem like some teams near the top prioritized fit a little bit more than maybe in the past. Right. And some of it is also, I think, just how things shook out. You know, the the Kings deciding to keep their spot and Ivy. I, I agree with you. I think that Ivy, if you think of him, you know, the fit of him with the other players, you know, so some of some teams think about this in terms of personnel. So it's okay. Does, you know, the Ivy Fox conflict. Another part of it is how does Ivy fit in irrespective of Fox? You know, those guys do it and, and those guys do conflict. But if you think Ivy can be better, or you think he can do things a little bit differently. And I think that's a totally fair point. But where I wanted to go with Jaden Ivey, someone who was, you know, not, not only with his connections to Indiana, but also a worthy potential pick for the Pacers should he have been there, and as you brought up the potential move up, going to the Pistons is a little bit different because they already have their expected, you know, primary ball handler, Kate Cunningham, a guy who's bigger than point guard size, and that opens things up. But I'm very interested in your evaluation of Ivy and something that when I watched the film, I was kind of torn on, which is, do you think he's better defensively on ball or off ball? Not only at this point, because we could talk about some of his attentiveness stuff, but also kind of moving forward with his physical tools. Right. So I think that's the best way to put it. He has the natural tools where at times you'd see him like whenever we were doing our previews of him, we watched Purdue play Michigan State and Max Christie kind of feigns like a flex action and goes up into, you know, Chicago through a pin down up around into like a gut DHO and Jaden gives up space there but his recovery speed and his ability to get back in front and be able to not only just block that shot from behind but get back in front of Max Christie and elevate to block tells you that you know that's not something you can teach I know that's kind of a cliche but you, you literally can't teach that type of a physical tools so you do look at the off ball stuff and that's where I have a little bit more of an issue because I think in general we look at off ball defense and think okay well you can't, you can't teach athleticism, but you can teach somebody how to tag the roller or do this or that. And Jaden's case, it's not even always necessarily a, attentive to this. I think some of it's processing where, you know, scramble situations, I think, highlight how quickly players and their reaction speed is. And you could see at times like two Purdue players are making the rotation and he's still standing there trying to assess, you know, who am I supposed to take? Or, you know, it, it's floppy action and his guy sets him up and he loses him. And then in addition to getting lost on the action, he's shooting the gap instead of trying to fight over through the rest of those off ball screens. Or, you know, it's a 45 cut and he just is following the guy on the 45 cut instead of actually being active and keeping eyes on the ball as well. It's some positioning issues. And like to use another Pacer example, like I've watched Karis LeVert now play for Jacques Vaughn, Kenny Atkinson, Nate Bjorkren, Rick Carlisle, J.B. Bickerstaff, and I've never really seen those off-ball defensive issues correct themselves. It's not to say that it can't. We have seen it with some other players. I mean, I think Jason Tatum was a person that was brought up during the draft process as having, you know, some attentiveness issues. Same with, um, Anthony Edwards up in Minnesota, that was a lot of what his draft profile was. And I think you can see some improvements clearly with both of those two players, but it isn't guaranteed. So I think that some of the concerns with Jaden Ivey are realistic. Um, when I was projecting him just with Tyrese, like Tyrese is somebody who the best things that he does defensively really show up one pass away when he's at the nail, his ability to close out and not only just close out the first time, but get back into the, to a play and contest again. So I really like him off ball. So I felt like, you know, if, if you can use more of Jaden's recovery speed going over screens and in on ball situations, maybe the fits there. But I do think that Jaden has some, some current holes defensively that he's going to have to work out. 
Agreed. And that also, to me, makes the Pistons a more a, a very intriguing fit because they can focus on what he does well now. And then if Ivy develops that part of, you know, some of the recognition later on, then you can start to shift in other directions. And I'm not completely sold. I, I'm kind of torn on whether Ivy, wait, what his ideal offensive role will be. That also depends not only on improving his handle, but also, you know, where his jump shot goes, which is obviously such a swing skill for him as it is for so many young prospects coming into the league right now. And the good news for Detroit is that they're not going to rely on him as much on ball as some other teams may have, depending on, I mean, oh, actually, as kind of a weird thing in this draft is that a lot of the teams from four to nine did kind of have other options there, you know, Tyrese Halliburton for the Pacers, if he had gone to the to the Kings, obviously Sabonis and Fox both have creation responsibilities for them. But the other challenge there is if Ivy never really gets, you know, if that part of his game doesn't come all the way, and this is part of why I thought that, you know, it's a little ambitious to potentially have him like those who had him as like a lock for four. It's like, well, think about it practically. And it's funny because you can parallel it to his now teammate Killian Hayes or somebody who I was really wrong on years ago is Trezante Exum, which is a practical consideration. If you are not good enough on ball to be the lead person on a good offense as a guard sized player, you're just a lot less valuable to your team unless you do everything else right. And so you could have, you know, if you wanted to have prime Clay Thompson as the archetype of the kind of, you can't do that, but you can do everything else. Sure. But how many players are really of that mold? And generally speaking, you know, if you can't reach that threshold, you can be useful to your team. But is it is it really something that you want at fourth in the draft? Yeah, and I think that that in part, I know that he was getting a lot of comparisons to John Morant during the pre-draft process, and I never really felt like that was a fair or completely accurate comparison. I know, you know, his mom was an assistant, obviously, in Memphis, and I know that they had worked out together some, but Jaden just does not have the same degree of creativity as a passer that, that yeah. John Morant or, or, had. Or shake, or shake on ball, either one. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I think that the handle is kind of an underrated aspect, because at times he does have, like, the double cross. He can create separation in part because teams are going to sag off of him because because of what his speed aspect is at the college level. So that makes it easier for him to create some shots. Like, and you know, the big one that he made in the game against Texas, they're shading him left and the big is way back in the paint. He's able to hit that step back. Um, there's times where he can put together dribble combination moves, but I think NBA teams will find some success shading him left. And it's funny because when he's running the pick and roll, he kind of like his half speed is still fast. So if you're a team that's going to use like no middle or ice coverage, I think he's going to have some adjustment and tinkering to do to, you know, if you're going to hit the roller in those situations, especially, you know, when you are being weak to your left, you got to work in tandem speed with that roller. And sometimes he wants to outpace what the roll man is, and then he gets to the rim and has nowhere to go. So he did improve at like snaking his dribble when those types of things happen. But then you go back to the mid range where he really doesn't like, he's going to have to develop a runner or something there because when he gets leveraged into that, I think some of it has to do with, you know, some deck issues where you know getting into his gather isn't super clean if he's having to do that with his left hand and that's just like an aspect of his game that he's going to be able to have to build out but I think your point is salient in that you know if he was going to be playing with Tyrese Halliburton or Cade Cunningham like he is now in Detroit that you know hopefully that allows him to be brought on a little bit more slowly where maybe you let him run um, some on-ball primary and bench units and, and short spurts whereas else you can see like again more of how he was operating off ball in Detroit whether that's you know coming off of got DHOs or Chicago actions or, you know, to get to on ball outcomes. Um, I think that's going to be good. But I mean, it's true. Like, I don't think it was 
even just looking at Sacramento's decision, you know, I think Sacramento has like the reputation that they don't always make the best front office decisions. But if another team had decided, hey, we're going to take this player who is very complete and doesn't seem to have as many holes in his game versus, you know, Jaden Ivey has this raw athletic burst and can get to the rim, whatever, and taking a bigger swing. I think that maybe that gets viewed a little bit more differently because he is. He's he's either going to have to, the shooting is really going to have to translate or the passing is going to have to. And, you know, that isn't completely guaranteed right now, especially given what you're saying with the size issue as well, being somewhat undersized at the two guard position. The Pacers end up staying at six. They end up drafting Bendik Matherin. What did you think of him as a prospect? Well, we'll start there. Independent of the Pacers, what when you watched film on Matherin, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because he had the game against USC where I think it's kind of being treated as the gold standard in terms of his passing processing because there were some moments in that game where it wasn't just him finding the open man. He was actually, you know, using some manipulation. There was actual playmaking coming from him. And I do think he grew in his patience and maturity, particularly in second side pick and rolls. Some of that is the Arizona's credit because they run a lot of empty sides. So he's not having to read as many backline defenders anymore. Um, I think that the off ball shooting, the movement shooting is going to translate. He gets so much elevation. I, I believe in all the transition stuff and his ability to unlock his athleticism there. Um, but defensively, like he gets billed as a three and D guy a lot. And I, I think that that label gets thrown around a little bit too much in general. Agreed. But, but, you know, just everybody who's wing size that can shoot a three isn't guaranteed to be three and D, but, um, his defense is going to need to come along, especially given that he was drafted by the Pacers, but just even independent of that, it's again, it's, it's not completely similar to Jaden Ivy, but there are some processing issues where sometimes he has, you know, these really great highlight weak side blocks where he rotates over with his athleticism. And other times he has trouble judging when he needs to pounce and you know hang out in kind of tall grass along on the baseline where he doesn't make the tag or he should be staying on the shooter and he kind of goes in there way too early before he even needs to tag or you know his screen navigation needs some work where there were moments in some of the games where I watched where he can't get over the screen so he just hugs the screener the big isn't back ready to receive that type of a switch isn't up at the level so then you're just giving up a wide open three so I think I believe because of what I've seen from his tools that the on-ball defense might come along but he's going to have some significant off-ball stuff that he's going to have to process through and and you know to take it back to the Pacers and with all three picks that they made you know they were a team after the trade deadline that had the worst defense in the NBA and just like from the eye test I think most people probably would have guessed that if you watch the Pacers sure toward the back end of the season so um not that they have to I mean I think that they're being very realistic about what their timeline is I mean Chad Buchanan and Kevin Pritchard both put it out there that like we know this is going to take a little bit of time for us to get back to being you know relevant and competitive so it's not like they need to be a great defensive team next year but do you believe that they have, you know, the infrastructure in place to bring these three players along to where they need to be when you already don't have like a lot of guaranteed two-way players on the roster, let alone point of attack defenders? What I found so fascinating is I, you know, watched Matherin. It was actually, I think my scouting on him was either the day or two days before the draft was that there was a lot that I liked about him offensively as kind of a secondary option. And we, we saw his role shift for Arizona where he was really just, you know, like kind of an off-ball shooter that freshman year, but was productive and, you know, shot, I think, 41% from there and then got more on ball and did, you know, and was still efficient his second year when Pac-12 player of the year at Arizona and, I believe in the jump shot. I think that something that struck me watching the film, um, I spend a lot of time when I'm watching prospects, and this will be true in, in person at Summer League too, watching mechanically. You know, it's so like, and Matherin, not only the burst, but the balance 
on his jump shot is really good. Like it is one of the better one of the better jump shots solely in that respect that I've seen over the last few years where he he's you know if he gets his feet under him which he almost always does then it's going to look good lower body and his upper body's good too. And that generally to me lends itself to a projectable jump shot. You talked about this a little bit in terms of catch and shoot versus coming off screens in your piece, which I thought was what I thought was interesting. And you know, so I, I have confidence in that. And then he has it's the it's a weird split with Matherin, and I think it's gonna resolve one way or the other, is he has really good feel, though it might have been like the system for cutting. Like the timing on his cuts and everything else was was better than I expected. Arizona does more of that than most teams in college. But he didn't have great feel defensively. And so what I yeah. was trying to parse together is generally those things run together. And so whether we're talking about a a good passer who doesn't have great feel defensively, eventually figuring that part of it out. I mean, if you want to go to the extreme, Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz, actually, you know, injuries and all that. But like those guys are both much better defenders in the pros than they were in college. And, you know, they had good feel. They just started applying it and actually tried on defense, which is advantageous. But with Matherin, I I think I will know really fast. Like, I think by the end of his rookie year, this will have clarified. But was the the good kind of more felt like instinctual stuff offensively? Was that him? And the defensive stuff, you know, getting caught on screens, not really reacting super well, was that or was that him? And I I don't know. I genuinely don't. Yeah, and the thing with the cutting is, is it kind of goes hand in hand. I like to really pay attention, and I probably more so with him than anybody because I just felt like Arizona ran a lot of creative stuff. Is I value watching what they're doing with the other pieces on the floor and how yes. that impacts. So, like when you watch Arizona, and this was in the stock down, but mainly just because I was pointing out what some of his shot selection can be and whether he's going to recognize, you know, where help is coming from and what passes he's going to make. But something that's really interesting, and the Phoenix Suns do this as well, but like if they're going to run Chicago and it starts out in horns with two bigs standing there, the big who doesn't have the ball that's going to, in theory, be the pin down screener for Matherin will stand in the opposite direction. They're not facing into a pin down. They're almost like in a sitting position with their hand reached out. And what that does is the defender who's there is expecting that, hey, this might be a reversal pass. So I can't really switch this. And that told me that Arizona's coaching staff really wanted to put Matherin in positions where they were going to be chasing him, trailing him in DHO situations that they weren't as comfortable with him as a creator because of what some of his handle issues can be to get him in a situation where if a team switches up the line, what he's going to be able to do about it. So in the same regard with what you're mentioning with the cutting, they ran probably two or three set actions just designed to clear the floor for because they trusted him so much as a cutter to set up his man and get back door. They had an elevator set where they did that. They had a high-low set where it was all just, that was just smoke and mirrors so that he could be a cutter so when you look at it that way then you have to question you know how instinctual was it not to say that he didn't have any improvised cuts because he did but they were putting him in the position to do that so you're bringing up a very good point that we will find out pretty soon like how much of that was him how much of it was the system and, you know, I think Rick Carlisle is more than capable of putting him in similar positions. But if it's all just, you know, about judging what his feel is and you take that away, maybe he is more of what we're seeing on the defensive end or maybe not. Maybe he's going to show strides on that pretty quickly. But I mean, I think even in summer league that that's going to be valuable to see, you know, what does he do in scramble situations? What does he do as a help defender? Does he recognize how close or far away he can be from the ball? Those types of things. 
One other concern that I had with Matherin and, you know, Pac-12 player of the year. And, and I try to, you know, you know, as little context as possible when I start watching film, just when I, you know, middle of the way, then I start to really add that in. But because the idea is like, what are they as a player? You kind of want to get that idea without it. And there were some very interesting results there with guys like Keegan Murray and AJ Griffin. We can go into that later if we want to. But with Matherin, I, I watched the Pac-12 tournament title game they played against UCLA and he had a very good game overall you know 27 points got to the line a bunch but my criticism for a Pac-12 player of the year especially in the first half was you didn't feel him as much as I hoped on offense or defense, you know, the Arizona scheme there. I mean, if you want to watch some nice college offense, watch, watch some Arizona film. There are a couple other coaches that do good stuff, but I thought they, they, it was, it was very appreciated by me that they would, that, you know, you could, they were so watchable, but with Matherin, a lot of that is on the defensive end too. Like some of the blow buys that he gives up or just like not really being in his man's Jersey. And I, I, that was a, it was a surprising criticism for me for somebody who has had the success that Benedict Matherin has of usually those players like who have that kind of production, you feel them too much. You know, the idea that they're trying to dominate, this is college, they're going to do that. You know, like it errs on the side of being too aggressive, being too, all those things. And with Matherin, it wasn't quite that. And now you could make an argument that that fits well with being a complimentary NBA player. You know, that the idea that he can fit into that kind of a role more easily. However, it also, and then, you know, kind of the duality of the cuts and the feel is it could also be just like, he's, he's just not that kind of, phys- he, he doesn't apply his athleticism as much as I'd like. Yeah, I think that shows up in some certain spots. I'm guessing that some of it too, like what I mentioned earlier, goes back to what the handle is. Because mm-hmm. I am a little bit different because I watched that UCLA game and I also watched them play Houston in the tournament. And I feel like there's quite a few spots where, you know, they had however many plays that were run predominantly to get him a shot, whether it was off a cut, off of off ball motion, whatever, the DHO play that I referenced before. And he seems very much to me almost the opposite in that if a play is run for him, I think he's going to need to come to a place of that doesn't mean the shot has to be. Uh huh. Yeah. Like he comes off of the plays and, you know, the one time the, the cut play that I'm mentioning with the elevator screen, Houston doesn't bite on it. They've scouted on it. They don't get back cut. He then has to create with his own handle, which can be dicey. He draws four defenders underneath the basket and still tries to spin and elevate and get that shot instead of making the pass out of it or in the UCLA game they run that sit dho action he comes off of it the guys clear off the strong side corner that's the shortest easiest pass and he still goes in and tries to make a shot there so um obviously he had the quote too about you know lebron's gonna have to show me that he's better than me (laughs) i mean i do think there's some mentality there where he's gonna want to assert himself and you know the one thing that's good for him is as i really do think a lot of what he does really well and a lot of what tyrese halliburton does really well will mesh yes Um, just having i I think that there's definitely a Tyrese effect in terms for bigs and for off-ball guards in the form of Matherin, as well as what we saw with Buddy Heald, that he's going to make those players better. Tyrese's eye manipulation is so good. You can rely on that meshing pretty well with what we've seen what? of Matherin as a cutter and as well as juicing what they do in transition. Exactly. I think, I think that's a big piece of this because I know that we talked about it on, I think, the last time that I was on here that, you know, that's never really been 
a foremost feature of a Rick Carlisle team in the recent past. Like the last seven years, they've ranked in the bottom five of transition frequency. And even if you look at the Pacers this year, I think they were like 27th before the trade deadline for about four games that looked like they were going to pick it up and be playing more on the open floor. And Tyrese definitely wants to catch inbound passes and immediately book it to the other end of the floor and get downhill and play. Like you can see moments where he's practically jumping out of his skin, like out ball, outlet the ball quicker. I want to go. And, you know, Matherin fits very well with that. So if you are, if, if Rick's going to let go of those reins a little bit and ease up with a little bit of the play calling and let people play, you know, more free in the open court than giving him the horses to do so, which is what it seemed like they tried to do with this draft, maybe a little bit less with Nemhard, but with Kendall Brown and with Matherin, at least, it seems like they're trying to nudge that direction, get more athletic, be able to get up and down the floor more easily with athleticism. It seems like they have to, like that, that's just, it's, it's a competitive advantage particularly with this team and we also got a little bit of data on the other part of it which is you know comparing you know as the kind of lead creator contrasting Halliburton with Luka Doncic like we saw this year Jason Kidd's there new coach can potentially do different stuff Matt still didn't run I think that's just not what Luka you know especially with how often the ball is in his hands it's just not really the way he operates and so Carlisle was that coach before Luka he'll be that coach after but I think we did get a sign of you know so some of the last few years the the pre-Indiana data might have been context for Carlisle as well as context for you know everything else so I'm very interested in that Plenty more to talk about with Caitlin Cooper, but first a message from Bet Online. Our partners at Bet Online continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports development, including this year's NHL Finals, Major League Baseball scores, all the latest fighting news, and even next season's early NFL futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering information, from live betting to playoffs, esports, and more. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today using the CLNS50 code to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Reminder that promo code is CLNS5050 for your 50% welcome bonus to get that bonus and get in on the action at BetOnline where the game starts. With Matherin, when I was watching the film, you know, you didn't know where he was going to end up in the draft. I actually saw some parallels in offensive role. I saw a fair amount of them with Chris Duarte. And, you know, the idea that they're both very capable off-ball shooters who have some of, who have some of that. I actually like Duarte's on-ball game better than Matherin, just in terms of feel and kind of understanding understanding his spots. But also, Duarte's way older, so you could see that time helps Matherin get to that level. Do you see those players as kind of competing for the same role or is it potentially complementary if you can figure it out defensively? And this is the big question, right? Because, I mean, during the entirety of the offseason so far, and I, re- I understand that the Pacers are one of few teams with a lot of cap space this summer and it's possible that you know agents are putting things out there to drum out a market but we heard pretty strongly that the Pacers were interested in Jalen Brunson for a time that died down with some of the stuff that's happening with the Knicks and the Mavericks then we were hearing a lot of things about Colin Sexton the players that were going to be in range in the draft that it seemed like the Pacers liked they they took Benedict Matherin Johnny Davis was probably another option there that they brought in for solo workouts are all two guards. I I ultimately think that both of them shake out best at the two position from a defensive standpoint. I like what you said about Chris. I mean, I think he can dribble, pass, and shoot. I think he needs to get better at times with mastering the nuances of when to dribble, pass, and shoot. I do like him a little bit more doing um, 
self-creation at this point in time than what I think of probably of Matherin, but I like Matherin better as an off-ball movement shooter that didn't necessarily completely translate. So far for Chris, I think he only made like four shots off of his screen from three this year. Um, but I think he's more so a guy who's going to stand behind a flare screen necessarily than, you know, swing out from a stagger and hit a shot like, you know, Doug McDermott would have done for the Pacers. But I mean, I think that's a big question that they're going to have to answer because like you mentioned, Chris is 25. So given the other players that they are interested in, unless they're like really convinced in Chris defending threes, which the interesting part about him is a lot of times last year because, you know, Brogdon isn't necessarily somebody that you want guarding quicker speedier guards chris would end up being the guy guarding ones um and face guarding in certain circumstances to try to you know pressure 94 feet to help what their defensive issues were but you know maybe they feel good with him guarding ones and then you're having taking more advantage of what tyrese does off ball hoping that benedict matherin can make some strides on that end of the floor but it's not a lot of size i mean the entire roster doesn't really have a true um wing defender if you really look at it they don't really have they they have a lot of holes at the three spot it's a lot of guys who are kind of wing size but are better at the four and a lot of guys who are better as either combo guards or solely at the two so but my thinking is is if they've kind of already decided in their heads that hey we don't see chris as a starter and that's why we've been rumored in some of these upgrades for guys who are free agents and that's why we took matherin then it's almost to a point of you know do you consider at all because of what his trade value is going to be like i suspect that if they would have been willing to move him at the deadline that he would have had a good return because he's on a rookie scale deal I do think he could have contributed for a contender I mean even if you just look at the Warriors I know they were heavily linked to Chris Duarte during the draft process last year between him and Moses Moody I think Chris would have played with them for them in the playoffs I think he could have been in their playoff rotation so um, that's something that the Pacers have to evaluate when they talk about their young core they always talk you know very glowingly of Chris and Tyrese and Isaiah Jackson but um, they did. They did have some overlap there. They said they wanted to draft for talent, but and I get that. I think that's what position they need to be in with their current trajectory. But um, I'm not completely sold. I'll have to see it on all three of them playing at the same time. Duarte also factors into one of the other fascinating dynamics. Was uh, Jeremy Wu? I believe of SI had this, and I, I don't know how definitive it. You know, not not criticizing Jeremy's reporting, but the idea that basically Indiana may have been trying to move up to four seems unlikely. They could have gotten up to three just because everybody kind of understood this is top three it's very hard to to move into that range unless houston really likes somebody who's available at six and it seems like the cost may have been duarte and so the you know drafting somebody who does a lot of similar things you know with that spot says something about it but i want to go kind of broader than that let's say again you're in the general manager's chair if the choice if you can move up to so the price going from six to four is probably going to be high with the idea that it appears Sacramento liked Keegan Murray the best and the idea is that probably either Indiana or Detroit is going to take Keegan Murray. So you're you're downgrade. It's not the situation like Danny Ainge years ago where he got Tatum at three, which is who he wanted in the first place, allegedly. Would you have given up, let's say, Duarte? Like, did you like either Ivy or Murray enough to sacrifice something real to get different options? I mean, I guess it depends, too. I mean, they're going to have a lot more information on what have been available to them in free agency to fill out other spots. But I mean, I will say of Keegan, I felt like he addressed the most of more of their needs. And I know it was somewhat controversial at the time. But when I looked at the difference between Jaden and and, and Keegan, um, 
Jaden Ivey, I think, has the higher ceiling. I think most of people would probably agree on that. But I felt like Tyrese can optimize Jaden. I'm not completely convinced that Jaden would have optimized and not even necessarily potentially cannibalized some of what Tyrese does. And in the case of Keegan Murray, I think that they, being Tyrese and Keegan, could have optimized each other and that he would have represented some things that they don't necessarily have on the roster. And weaknesses that I saw from Tyrese over the back end of the season where there are times where he gets bottled up by length. And I'm I'm not saying that Rick Carlisle is going to be a guy who's going to run, you know, a post-heavy offense, but Keegan's also more of a modernized post-up kind of guy where you're not really running like shot clock zapping post-up plays for him. It's more so like him doing his work early and diving into a post-up or stopping on a dime on a cut and sealing on a post-up to kind of hunt a jump shot. And in that sense, like physicality is a hole on the Pacers roster. Having somebody that can, you know, attack a switch from the inside and help Tyrese in that regard, I think is something that would have benefited them. And also just, I think that I would describe Keegan Murray as a technician. He's just a very smart basketball player that, you know, he may not have some of the same creative chops that I think that we really look at in terms of, you know, being the top thing that we look at for tops picks is, you know, what is his advantage creation? You're not going to find a ton of clips of Keegan Murray doing that, but like an example, I would use they played Ohio State they run a play where you know the guards wing exchange underneath the basket Keegan's supposed to flash to the elbow and that's going to be an elbow isolation for him first play he can't get anywhere off the dribble and it ends up being like a wide-angled layup they take a timeout come back out they fake like they're gonna do the wing exchange the guards stay on both sides and he does a back cut gets to the rim and that's a lob like just watching that and envisioning like hey that's something that would really work with Tyrese and he just really understands how to play the game um it would been tough i'm guessing that the pacers thought that price was too high and that's why it didn't happen but um i do think that for their current trajectory if they can do something that will make the roster better i would make chris available even though i really do like him because what you just said like he is 25 years old so if you're already projecting in your minds that you don't see him as you're starting to then i think it's worthwhile to see what's out there and and to see if they could have moved up yeah Sure. And Murray, it gets underappreciated. I brought this up before about the edges of the positional. It's not a spectrum because then it would come back around. But the the edges, uh, the edges of the positional range versus the center. And so I think of Murray as a natural four who can play some three. But the idea of those type of players is there's a chance that Keegan Murray, you know, that he is in a, I, I don't think he's going to be a star, but I think he could be a capable starter. And that if he's a little bit lower than that, it's a lot easier, should that happen, to fit a six foot eight dude in your rotation than it is a six foot three, six foot four guy. Because you can play him, you know, you, could, you can complement a lot of different players. You could go with a lot of different theories of what you want in your other forward spot. And so it's this weird idea that, you know, like you could, I generally move up forward size and I draw a difference, you know, some the, the swing man versus weight, like some of the definitional stuff can be hard, but it's like, if you're a forward who's, who can defend multiple positions, like I'm just going to move you up a little bit on the board. The other kind of player who is, I mean, I actually had him kind of above this range is Shaden Sharp, but did you watch him at all? Like it was harder film to watch than most because it was all, you know, EYBL stuff. I did not get a hold on any of the shade and sharp stuff. I kind of decided going into it that it was like, I think sometimes we're like painted to think in general that now that there's the one and done rule that like, oh, nobody can, nobody can go to the NBA straight out of high school anymore. And we can't adjudge this or assess it. Like I totally believe in general managers ability to watch that and suss it out and be able to, you know, glean what they can from that information. I didn't necessarily trust my own and I couldn't get access to the UIBL film. I'm like, what am I going to find on YouTube? So no, I did not do a deep dive into shade and sharp. I, I will say as somebody who did, um, 
I think he would have been a great fit with the Pacers. I think that it was, you know, he. I had him fourth of all the players I watched. I didn't watch everybody, of course. But what Sharp made sense with Sharp kind of around Halliburton is, first of all, like the, the pop and the physical tools. Like, I think Sharp... I don't trust the jump shot quite as much as Matherin, but I trust it a little. I trust it, you know, more than a lot of guys who've come out kind of in that range. But also, Sharp, the defensive film to me was meaningfully better. He, could, I, I talked about applied athleticism between those two guys, and Matherin has plenty of good tools, but Sharp seems a little bit physically stronger to me. And he, you know, there were plays where his vertical pop, I, I actually liked, I kind of liked Sharp's blocks better than Matherin, which is interesting. They both had a couple that I really liked, but there was this one that just lingered for me where the, it was, I wish I remembered which, I mean, it's an EYBL team, doesn't really matter. Ran an elevator doors play, Sharp spins, so he gets blocked by the elevator doors. He spins out and then blocks the three. It's just like, you never see that. Like, that's yeah. not that's not something that ever really happens. And also the idea that Sharp, I liked his on-ball kind of stuff better than Matherin. So if Tyrese Halliburton, I mean, you could say Brogdon, but that gets complicated. If Halliburton ends up being kind of like a hybrid where he has the ball a lot, but is not like a full, you know, I'm not even talking about Trey Young, but maybe even more in the line of like a Drew Holiday point guard, you know, so it's like he has the ball a lot, but not all the time. Then you can use that complimentary playmaking from Sharp. And also, of course, when when one of them is on the bench, you can you can make it all work. And so I liked him better. But if you haven't seen him, we can't talk about it that much. So in, instead, we can go into. Well, so let's talk briefly. I, how much have you watched of the other two players that Indiana walked out of the draft with? Yeah, I, I've tried to do crash courses. It was funny because Andrew Demhard, we did a couple second round previews and he was on my list. And I was like, the Pacers aren't going to take another point guard. I need to I need to pick more wings to talk about for these podcasts and then they end up taking him. So yeah, I, I'm familiar. What do you what do you think of his game? And and with the second round pick, you're not thinking about where do they fit with where does Nemhard fit with the Pacers this year? It's more like, do you think he can play? Yeah, and I think that what I'm judging now from the front office with this coaching staff in place is I think what they place a very high premium on is high field guards. I think that that's something that they really value in terms of how quickly can this guy not only just read the drop defender but or the switch defender, but also read, you know, the tertiary defenders, the help defenders, what what they're doing read the outside hip, read the front foot and make a very quick decision because, you know, they traded for Tyrese Halliburton. That's, you know, everything I just mentioned is probably his top skills. Um, I think that Andrew Nemhart has a very good feel, very good patience out of the pick and roll in terms of his ability to read, you know, the low man, read the nail defender. And I think that that matters a lot to Rick Carlisle. I think if they can have multiples of those guys, I questioned a little bit some of Nembhard's, uh catch and shoot ability. I'm going to have to see more of that because the numbers um, on those by comparison to what he did as a pull-up threat weren't quite as glowing um especially when he was contested i think that those those numbers went down quite a bit because i think it yeah 25 percent on catch and shoots when he was guarded compared to 41 percent when he was unguarded it looks like he you know he speeds up his releasing and it can get a little bit iffy so i don't know how much they're going to be willing to play those two guys together and i i do think you know you are just trying to find a rotation player clearly they thought a lot of him and i'm not surprised based on the things that i said but when you do have you know i think that they're going to want tyrese halliburton playing a lot of point guard i mean i've heard kevin Pritchard compare him to Tom Brady and Andrew Luck and 
Peyton Manning for what they were, you know, for their respective NFL franchises. Like they definitely see him as the point guard of the future. I don't think Malcolm Brogdon's going to be on this roster when the season starts, or even if he is, he's not going to be on it by the end of next season. And, but you do have TJ McConnell there. So it is kind of a situation of, you don't want TJ McConnell playing off the ball. So I, I don't know how much you're going to be playing those two guys together. And is he going to get the opportunity? So it is, a, it is slightly reminiscent of the Goga situation in a way. That's true. And with second round picks, sometimes you can think a little bit more about it. You don't have to. I mean, you can get projects, you can do a lot of different things. And then, yeah, and so with Nemhart, I've seen a little bit of him just because, you know, I saw Gonzaga in person this year. And I also watched, you know, I watched Chet Suck tape. And I was interested. I didn't, I didn't have a, I don't have a full read on Nemhart. And then later on in the draft, and and again, somebody that I, I didn't get the chance to watch, but a lot of people were surprised that Kendall Brown slid all the way to 48. Have you watched? You've you said you've watched in like a little crash on him. Yeah, I mean, I think the other part, in addition to them really valuing high field point guards, is I do think that they're trying to make the nudge to get more athletic, and Kendall Brown certainly fits that bill. Um, jumps really easily in transition great leaping and speed ability and in, in, in the open floor electric in the open floor at times I do I don't know that I can completely define what he is because I think he shot like 26 percent on all shots classified as jump shots in the half court I think that that shot's really going to have to hit for me to understand exactly what his role is going to be offensively because he scored a lot of points off cuts and if you were just to click like if you had access to synergy film and you just clicked oh let's watch all of the the possessions of him cutting I think that you would be pretty impressed but he also has this tendency where he wants to cut all the time Mm -hmm. and at times it it can spoil the spacing like if you're gonna cut during a pick and roll because you know hey nobody guards me I'm gonna try to be active like on the surface that's a good thing but if you're not getting there before the roll man gets to the basket and then you're being somewhat hesitant in it that's not always helpful especially to point guards who are then having to judge what exactly it is that you're doing and if it's cramping their ability to get into the lane and whatnot I think I would assess him overall as being somewhat Um, reluctant and hesitant in a lot of things that he does in the half court. His footwork can be that way. I mean, it stood out. I don't know if you ever got to catch if you watched any of Jeremy Sohan, but when Baylor played Kansas this season in the game that they won in February, that was kind of a telling game for Jeremy Sohan because he got to play at small ball five and run some inverted pick and roll and show that he could do other things as maybe a playmaking big when David McCormick was out there. By the second half, they weren't even having McCormick guard Sohan anymore. They were just hiding him on Kendall Brown, and he was sagging off. And sometimes, like, when he catches the ball in those situations, he can be very hesitant and record scratch out to shoot. One time he catches it and, like, just drives straight from the wing across the free throw line into, like, an off-balance pull-up two. There's some of that. I mean, I think, I think his finishing is going to have to come. So, like I said, offensively, you know, unless Rick Carlisle's really confident in his ability to work with him on the shot and get that to where it needs to be, I have some questions there and then also like defensively I don't think he's despite being a six foot nine wing which is a good thing the Pacers don't have you know what we mentioned before not a lot of wings but I don't really think he's a switch one through five guy and he can kind of be you know and this applies to Andrew Nemhart as well they can be a little bit slow to react on the catch. And I was surprised by how many blow-bys Kendall Brown had when I went back and watched the film and watched as much as I could. So my overall take by the end of the night, at least from a defensive standpoint, is I don't really think that they've necessarily, at least through the draft, added the guys right away without significant development who are going to help solve their on-ball defensive issues. 
That's fascinating. And I cracked up a little bit when you talked about Kendall Brown on offense, because I, I think back to myself in pickup where like when I didn't have confidence in my jump shot, I would try to do other things just to prove that I was helping and it ended up causing more problems than it helped. <laughs> you know, the idea of like, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to do a mix. And it's just like, let the let the people who are better than you do what they're what they can do. And there there's timing that, that can work out well. And again, you're, you know, you're drafting in the 40s. So the hope is that the physical tools can translate, something else can get there. And player development, you can have a couple roster spots in that respect kind of two more threads i want to go through before we before we part ways one of them is the pacers are in a different situation than a lot where they have these veteran players who are who are talented who except for miles turner they're under contract for multiple years and pritchard front office have this challenge of do you feel like you need to move them now like let's say brogdon because you have halliburton you have the tom brady andrew luck of your of your team do you want to move the drew Bledsoe? you know get that out of the way so you can so you can give him time to shine and brogdon has two more years after the coming season that's a long time healed has one more year after the coming season and then turner pending free agent so the situation is a little bit different I'm not asking for source reporting here, but how would you be approaching those circumstances? Would you be like, we 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 have we have this path that we can go down, so let's just get there now? Or if the deals aren't really strong enough, we can hold on to them. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different for each player. In Brogdon's case, he came back and played eight games after the All Star break with Tyrese Halliburton, and on paper, like I know that the instant reaction after that trade was made was like, well, they need to trade Brogdon because those two players are too similar. I don't really find them to be that similar at all, if I'm being honest. Like if I, I agree with you, because I, I yeah. loved Halliburton's off-ball game when he was at Iowa State. Like if I'm, if I'm allowed to use an analogy, when I was a senior in high school, our school got a grant for smart boards. And before, my AP calculus teacher was just writing on a regular whiteboard. And for like a month straight, I was like, these in my head, I was like, these boards are not very high quality. They're fairly blurry. I, I'm having trouble reading what they're doing with the math problems until finally I told my friend, I'm like, these boards are really blurry and they're like what are you talking about they hand me their glasses i put my their glasses on i was like oh this is a problem with my eyes so i go and get glasses and the board's completely clear Mm. that's a little bit the example that i would use of going from brogdon as a point guard and a playmaker to then seeing tyrese halliburton and so when the two of them were playing together the pacers got outscored by 17 points per 100 possessions across those eight games which that's a very 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 small sample size we're not talking a lot of a lot of possessions or a lot of minutes here and it bears pointing out that brogdon had been out for a while with um, the Achilles issue and and taking extended time to rehab. And then when he did come back, they had him on a minutes restriction and he ended up by midway through those eight games suffering a concussion as well. No training camp between the two of them. But if we're just uh, if we're just looking at those results, it, it wasn't. It, it felt like it was diluting a little bit of what Tyrese is able to do because like all eight games, they were a net negative in every single game when the two of them were out there and they won three of those games. Um, first, second, third, fourth quarter, if you filter it that way, they were a net negative on the floor as well, which again, they did not have Miles Turner. The defense was not good. I think they gave up like 125 points per 100 with them both out there. But that speaks to what I'm talking about, that like you want Brogdon defending bigger wings. You don't really want what Tyrese's on-ball positioning is. I think he's better suited using his instincts and his ability to read passes away from the ball as well. So you don't really have an answer there. And Brogdon, when he came back, it felt very much like he wanted to show everybody he was healthy again. So he was averaging like 22 drives per game, being super aggressive, but his shot as a whole, you know, kind of fell off again this season, which has kind of been a recurring trend minus the Bjorkren season since he came over from Milwaukee. 
So a lot of the offense in late game situations was tilting to Brogdon. Like they get up to Detroit, Detroit switching. Sometimes Halliburton can have some issues, you know, getting hip, winning hip to shoulder wars against, you know, length and like Isaiah Stewart in those situations. So they give it to Brogdon and then it's just a one and done isolation. So um, I think that they value being able to have, like, I would equate it this way. Brogdon can read the defense and find the open man. Tyrese Halliburton can actually, you know, shift the pieces on the floor. He actively manipulates the defense. So if they were to stay on the same roster, there would need to be a mentality change from both. I think Brogdon would need to realize I'm more of a 1.75. I need to be playing off the ball. This is better for my longevity to be a slot driver who runs secondary pick and rolls and can spot up and shoot away from the ball. And Tyrese at a certain point in time is going to have to realize like, I'm him. I'm Tyrese Halliburton because over the back end of the season, you would think like if there's going to be a jump in his usage and his ability to assert himself, that's when it would have happened when the roster, you know, is including a lot of, you know, G League players and other young guys that they're testing out to see. And he only had three games since he came over from the Pacers that he led the team in, in field goal attempts. And when they were out there, his usage dropped off. Like his usage was 20% without Brogdon dropped down to 16 with Brogdon. Mm. So I'm guessing that the Pacers are seeing all of this. And if you really want to find out like the entirety of can can Tyrese be a higher usage player be the guy that's consistently you know being the primary puncturing it I think that's why you look at a guy like what Benedict Matherin does like what Chris Duarte does because the results with Buddy Heald were a lot better like if we just look comparatively to when Buddy and Tyrese were on the floor and Brogdon was not they very nearly I think they about broke even or won those minutes which is saying something because they were not a good basketball team. Their so defense at, was atrocious yeah, during those minutes. Ex- exactly, and they and they nearly won them. So um, I'm guessing that that in the entirety is what the Pacers are seeing. In addition to the timeline issue, that you know Brogdon is going to be 30. He hasn't been available a lot. He's yet to play 60 games in a Pacers uniform in a season. So um, I think they're going to be active in trying to move him. Like I said, if, if he's on the roster by the end of next season, I would be very surprised by that. Turner, as a pending free agent, has a lot more of a voice in the process because they can have these extension negotiations. And it's not even about that even necessarily. Maybe Turner feels, which would be surprising to me considering his injury issues, that an extension is insufficient and needs to have full bird rights on it. So there's a lot of context that you and I both don't know. Because like to me, if he's unwilling to sign an extension with you or in general, then there's a lot of risk being transferred. But he's also such an important definitive piece of the Pacers in the near term because he is their defensive linchpin. Yeah, and that, that's the interesting part. I know Mark Stein had reported that he that it sounds like Miles is prepared to play out his contract and become a free agent, that they haven't really, you know. And it is kind of curious because, like you said, like he has had the injury issues, it sounds like to me. And if you look at it from his perspective, I know that he gave, he had a quote giving Jalen Smith some advice, and I want to be clear, like I'm not judging Miles for this opinion at all. I think players should have whatever motivation they want to play and, and all of that. But where he had advised Jalen Smith, like basically – get your money like we play because we love basketball but this is also about providing our families and miles has never been an unrestricted free agent and he's also never been on a team that's made it out of the first round of the playoffs and it doesn't to me at least seem like that's particularly likely next season if they can even you know scrape into it out of the play-in tournament to even have a chance of being that so um, it's possible that he just wants to test that out and see how it goes and and i can understand that from his perspective for the Pacers, like I guess if 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 he's firmly in the camp that he's not going to sign an extension, and I don't know that I haven't talked to him, but 
it becomes a point of what is the risk if you do bring him back? Because on the one hand, if you compare this to the Victor Oladipo situation when they left the bubble, it was pretty clear that Victor wasn't going to still be on that roster by the end of the season when he was going to hit um, free agency. But there was benefit to bringing him up and kind of dealing with the short-term payment of that because if he can build up his value, you take a measured approach, and at least they were able to get Karis LeVert in return, who they've now since flipped. I think that there's probably some logic to that approach because I do think that we've seen it. I've seen it with Isaiah Jackson and Goga. Like Tyrese has had an impact on their finishing in the pick and roll. Their two point percentages are better with playing with Tyrese versus without Tyrese. I think that it is logical that Miles might have, you know, a modest bump in production. If other teams see that, that might help his trade value. But the flip side of that is he does have an injury history. If he gets hurt again, and you don't move him this summer, are you going to have regrets about that? And twofold, like there's always kind of been something in Miles' career that you've been able to point to. Like, okay, well, Nate McMillan's just always having him pop to two in mid-range two, and that's there's not a lot else for him in this offense. So if they have a different coaching staff, and then once they had different coaching staffs, it was, well, now Sabonis is a starter, and he doesn't really get to play at the five at his natural position, and he's not great at finding his own usage. So if he's at the five, and, and now it's kind of transferred into the point that I just made, that like, well, he's been playing with Brogdon, and Brogdon can make plays, but he's not the playmaker that Tyrese Halliburton is. So if he comes back and plays, and all of those, like, I don't want to necessarily say it as excuses, but all those caveats are gone, and the expected bump weren't to happen, then mm. all of the rest of the teams are going to know, hey, like, before we might have been able to bank on, when he comes to our team, it's going to be different, because he's going to be at the five, and we have, you know, like, let's just use Dallas, for example. He's going to play at the five, and we have Luka Doncic, and this is this is going to be different here. If it's not different when he comes back at the start of the season and plays with the Pacers, what does that do to his trade value? It's a great point and a, a really fascinating dynamic in terms of risk because you you, you know the, the what is the value now versus going forward do you think you can retain him if you retain him then what can the you know what where, where do things move move forward how quickly it, it's a very complicated situation we'll you and I keep track it well we'll see if he maybe he gets moved before the next time we talk the last thing I wanted to end with is you watched a lot of a lot of film this year we've talked about a fair amount of those players is there anyone else that we especially that we haven't discussed, but it can be someone that we have that you really like, that you're really positive on of like, oh, there's this thing or this player in general that like I that I, I want to I, I want to put in put a pin in that I am positive on them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, like if I was looking up and down the Pacers roster, and I've said this off air to a few people that I talk about the Pacers to um, as players that I hope are back on the team next year and make spots. I, I really like what they get from O'Shea Brissett and Terry mm-hmm. Taylor. Both of them are very resourceful players who, like the opposite of what I just said about Miles, like if you look at the games that they played against Boston, which the Pacers were kind of right on the cusp of when Emi Yudoka made the switch where Robert Williams was guarding lower usage wings and they would, you know, not have him guard the centers that he would be outside and, and being able to roam along the sideline. That happened like right when they played a, a mini two game series against the Pacers. So He's guarding Miles Turner, and it's during COVID, so the Pacers are very depleted during during those two games. And they're guarding Sabonis and just absolutely swarming him when he catches it in the post. And Robert Williams is roaming off. And Miles is just really struggling to find his spots, and then he just, he's not really hitting the three in that particular game. So by the fourth quarter, they also wanted to be blitzing isos against Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown. Miles isn't playing anymore. They're just going straight up with Sabonis because – 
Torrey Craig had like 16 points in that game and was really doing well cutting off of the post-ups. He hit some shots, made more positional sense. Now, after all these trades happen, O'Shea Brissett is in that same role that Miles had with Robert Williams guarding him and also catching some of the minutes with Daniel Tice at the four. And he makes like six threes in that game. He's making all these intuitive cuts around Tyrese Halliburton. And you can just see the value. Like he's not going to do that every game, but to have somebody at the end of your roster who at least in theory can is very valuable. And I do think that he's somebody that like, just for the sake of other teams, like if he was playing on a good team, I think a lot of the things that he does would show up even more because he is, he's not somebody that you have to run plays for. He's very good at finding cracks and filling cracks on offense and defense and that you can have him on the sideline. And he's very good at knowing when he should help, when he shouldn't help um, being able to, to send double teams in certain spots. And then Terry Taylor's just a really interesting case. Six, five guy who you can use as a role man um, actually shows a little bit with short roll passing on occasion, can do some things with bully drives. Like he can just do a lot of different things where you can plug him into a lot of different spots. He's going to have to show something at times where he can be hesitant with his three point shot. But I think that there are ways to work around that and things that Rick's already shown. But um, I think those are two guys that they've definitely found that could potentially be rotation players, either on the Pacers or another team. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, anything else you want to discuss, or I think we're I think we're pretty good. I think I think we've covered it all. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time. Absolute pleasure. No problem. Always enjoy coming on. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can read her excellent work at Indie Cornrows, IndieCornrows dot com, and you can follow her on Twitter at C two underscore Cooper, C two underscore C O O P E R. Love having her on and love the conversation as I always do with Caitlin. For those who are wondering, usually historically it's been Sam Vecini that comes on after the draft. That is still going to happen. We're going to do that a little bit later. Sam is taking much deserved time off after not only doing his massive, excellent draft guide, but also doing his draft analysis. So he's taking a few days off and then we're going to do that what I guess will be called next week. Most of you are probably listening to this on Sunday or Monday, but it will be, you know, the, in the coming seven days is our current plan right now. If it ends up being a little later, it ends up being a little bit later, but I'm going to have Sam on. We're going to talk about the draft too. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly useful for Real GM Radio because it will never come out on a specific day of the week. So whatever podcast player you use, just subscribe. It'll come out. It'll pop into your player and it helps us, of course. You can also leave a rating and a review, help other people find the show via word of mouth really does make a big difference if you like a single episode or the show in general it can help other people find it really do appreciate that and then the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for us that is bet online and so betonline.ag and use that clns50 promo code you get a 50 percent woke bonus i get you telling them it came from us so hopefully they keep advertising on this fair podcast really do appreciate all of that you can also check out my other work Nate and I are going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime. Of course, draft stuff is over now, but you can listen to our previews. Maybe your team drafted somebody of the the guys that we just scout on. You haven't listened to it yet. You can go through that. Draft board is out there, analysis of the draft. And then mock-off season is coming up really soon. And our, you know, transactions. I think this this stretch is actually probably the best time to be a dunked on and dunked on prime subscriber. I also just had a Discord chat for total access people, which is in an email, so you can check that out. Got into in-depth in a lot of different topics. I truly enjoy that. Written work at The Athletic. Have a couple things in the works right now. We'll, of course, have a lot related to the offseason that should be coming out soon. And we check out Real GM Radio. Oh, and Spotify Live. We're going to keep going strong with that for 
I actually don't know the timeline of when we're going to stop it, but we'll probably keep doing it for a while. Um, Typically, that is Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. I believe we're going to try to keep that timing. Might shift a little bit when I'm in Vegas for Summer League, but we'll we'll do our best to figure it out, and that also gets released as a podcast later on, so you can just listen to it then. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I promise you I will read it. It goes to a separate spot in my inbox. I will reply if I can, but that is not the best part of it, so that's why it's feedback in some ways more than starting a dialogue, and I help when I can. But that is all for now, so Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.